Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan. And let me say hi to those who are listening this evening. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home. And let me not just leave it there, but say, don't just listen yourself. Encourage others to listen to the program. Send them a WhatsApp, a text message, give them a call. And let them know that That's Truth is live on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse for the next 90 minutes. Now, we are going to start out tonight's episode by going back to a question that was asked, I believe it was last week, in relation to Genesis 44, verses 5 and verse 15. Those verses read as follows. Is it not this in which the my Lord drinketh? Again, the context of this chapter is Joseph testing his brothers in Egypt. Verse 5 says, Is not this it in which my Lord drinketh, and whereby indeed he divineth? Yea, he have done this evil thing. And skipping down to verse 15 of Genesis 44, says, And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that ye have done? Wot ye not that such a man as I can do, can certainly divine? Pastor, from a biblical worldview, what is being meant here? Was Joseph a diviner? Well, I think the problem that um, the person who asked the question is probably concerned about is how could Joseph, uh, one who is used of God and one who was able to discern dreams and uh, give interpretations, how can it be said of him that he is a person who uses divination uh, by the steward, and then he himself, in talking to his brothers, uh, pretty much told him, you don't know, I can, I can divine and, and know things about you. The thing that we need to bear in mind, uh, several things I think are vitally important. One is, remember that this is a ploy, a scheme, this is a, a kind of a plot mm-hmm. that Joseph is trying to bring his brothers to a measure of conviction and awaken their conscience because two decades prior to this, they had um, sold into slavery because of jealousy and envy. And they had forgotten, thinking that Joseph was dead. Now they're down into Egypt uh, because of a famine that occurred in, in Canaan. Uh, they now have to come to Joseph, who has become the caretaker of the um, the food distribution in Egypt, having told Pharaoh about his dreams and given Pharaoh a seven-year economic plan to save the country. 
Uh, and so when Joseph recognizes them, they don't recognize him. But his whole thing is to awaken in them the, the depth of what they had done and uh, bring them to a reality that what they did was wrong and that he himself had survived and he was now ruling in Egypt. And just like the dreams had said, remember that uh, his dad had had a dream that the stars and the moon and the stars, uh, 11 stars bowed down to him. Uh, this was all an indication quite clearly that um, of what this dream would come true. So what we have here is Joseph uh, meeting with his boys, uh, having a big splash, a big party for them. And then uh, he refuses to take their money. Um, he sends them back home and uh, tells them bring down Benjamin. Uh, uh, Benjamin had come down, and now he's sending them back, and he tells his steward to um, put Benjamin's, uh, put his cup in Benjamin's uh, baggage, and let the boys go. When they're on their way home, um, the, the steward is sent to um, intersect them and to go into Benjamin's bag and find the, the cup there. Of course, you're stealing vital property belonging to Pharaoh. So they are brought back in and, and uh, Joseph confronts them. But remember that Joseph had told the steward that uh, when you find this cup in the baggage, um, use that expression that this is Pharaoh's divining cup. And then when they stand before uh, Joseph, Joseph said, you know, uh, do you not know I can divine and um, discover things about yourself? What we, I think is, is here is that uh, there's no way that um, it's conceivable they, uh, that Joseph will be using occult means of the Egyptians. Now remember that um, divination is practice uh, it, uh, was very, very common in those days. And they would use some kind of material, whether it be throwing a dice or um, using water uh, to do that or looking at the entrails in, in of, of, of uh, animals, etc., etc., to try to discern something that was future or something that they needed to know. What I think here is that Joseph is, is, is uh, doesn't want them to recognize that he is an Egyptian. And one of the best ways you can display that he's not Egyptian is to associate himself with the occult and, uh, and that kind of thing because he is uh, he's, um, coming through Abraham, he's coming through um, um, Jacob, and the mere idea of mentioning the, the divining cup, there's no way they would ever conceive that this would be Joseph. So I think it's a ploy that Joseph is employing. Uh, so this is not, in any case, this is Joseph um, acting out something. As a matter of fact, she'd given an Academy Award for the way in which he is able to get this done because by the time he's finished with those boys uh, you got Judah coming forward and, and telling his whole story of what really happened and, and telling in other words he comes to the point where he confesses uh, basically what those boys had done and uh, Joseph at one time when he saw how pitiful these boys were humiliated he bawled out crying he just couldn't contain himself any longer and then he said I'm Joseph so I just think that this is something that a ploy that he's using uh, to distract them, to let them not know who he was. But I don't think there's any indication that there would be something that he would actually do. However, I do believe that working in, in uh, Pharaoh's uh, home and being the prime minister, clearly he would have all the paraphernalia that would be used by uh, Pharaoh. But the exercise and the use of that is very doubtful that he would have done that. He didn't need that because God is the one who was constantly revealing to Joseph uh, things if he needed to know it. But I do think it was a, a, a drama, a dramatic uh, display, a, a plot, a, a scheme, 
to disarm these boys, and uh, it must not be taken as though it's something he's actually practicing, is that you're playing a part and, and making certain things that distract people, but in actual fact it's not real, it's not a reality. I think that's what this is all about. It's not that he actually practiced divination himself. Very unlikely he would do that, serving the true and the living God. And if you read Joseph's story before that, there's no question about it that he's a man whose God's hand is on and God is blessing no matter where you put him. You put him in the palace, he's blessed. You put him in prison, he's blessed. Put him on the throne, he's blessed. He's just blessed because God is with him. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. Uh, Keep reading your scriptures with a keen eye and continue to send in your questions. You can call and ask your question live on the air. It doesn't have to be on the topic we're discussing tonight. It doesn't have to relate to any other questions that are being discussed tonight. It can be off the wall. It can be a question about why the Bible says something or doesn't say something in relation to Uh, the biblical worldview. It could be about why the world seems so messed up, why the struggles that you're facing. There's a whole lot of questions you could call and ask, and you can call and ask them by calling 268-462-7420. I did want to make one other comment in case um, that that response doesn't seem satisfactory. I think it is, but remember that uh, Joseph was sold into slavery uh, 1895 B.C., Moses was born in 1526, 400 years after Joseph. Uh, Moses wrote the law. So he had no, uh, he would not have had the restrictions that you find in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So if you're looking for a a historical uh, basis why it it was possible even for him to have done certain things uh, because he didn't have the revelation uh, the law came 400 years after him, and he would not have known a lot of this stuff, just in case there's something more historic that's needed to help understand why perhaps this might have happened as well. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it to 268-782-1454, or you can join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then you can comment your questions right there on your device. No matter how you communicate with us, we need your help. We are coveting and looking forward to your help. We're looking for topics to discuss in future episodes of That's Truth. Again, we don't want this just to be talking. We don't want this just to be teaching. We want this to be practical for you, practical for your neighbor, for your family, for your coworker. Maybe there's a question or a topic that you hear discussed out there in the world or in the secular workplace or in the Christian workplace, and you feel that it would be beneficial for Pastor Murphy to discuss it in a future episode of That's Truth. Please, 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 would you let us know that topic so that we can prayerfully consider it and then discuss it as the Lord leads Pastor Murphy. Until we hear a question from you, we are going to pick up on a topic this evening. It's a topic that's been discussed on That's Truth before, to some degree, and there have been a number of questions down through the years that relate to this topic, but it's something that is, Pastor, it seems like our world is so messed up in this area, our current society, 
The topic is marriage. It's something that we all need to keep our minds keenly sharpened and focused on the biblical perspective of marriage. And that's what will be sought to be done tonight as Pastor Murphy answers questions and talks about this topic. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from eleven from Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at org. Currently at the Radio Lighthouse studio in Antigua, the time is 7.44. I'm just saying this. It's not just marriage. Okay, so we're going to, the topic is broader than just marriage. Uh, it also involves divorce, something that has become, unfortunately, synonymous remarriage. with the topic, and then also into the topic of remarriage. Pastor, as we set the, the stage for the marriage, divorce, and remarriage, what's the biblical perspective on marriage? I think the best way we can establish uh, the biblical perspective on this subject is perhaps look at a few verses and see how God views this whole matter, how the Bible portrays it. And I don't think that uh, we need to try to add to Scripture or subtract from Scripture. I just think it's very helpful to have an idea of what marriage is all about. If you look at Malachi two fourteen and 15, you'll discover there that marriage is a covenant agreement in which a man and a woman are legally and spiritually joined together uh, as husband and wife. Malachi 2, 14 and 15. Those verses say, Yet ye say, Wherefore, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dwelt, dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant? And verse 15 and did not he make one? Yet had he the residual of the residue of the spirit, and wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Yeah, the key thing there is that uh, it, when you look at marriage, it's a covenant. It's a, it's a, it's a you're making vows. It's not something that is done rashly. There is an element of legality in it, and that is emphasizing there that you um, it's, a, it's a real covenant. A covenant is a two-sided thing. You you have the um, two persons. You can't have a covenant without two. Sometimes you have a unconditional covenant. You have a conditional covenant. In the case of uh, uh, people who are married, they're both making commitments, they're most making vows that are to be held by both partners, not a unilateral decision. But uh, we have to understand it's a contract between a person when they get married, a very legal contract. That's why it is not just, uh, marriage is not just shacking up in a house instead of married. There always has to be a legal aspect of it, and that's where the, the covenant aspect of it comes in. And that's the first thing I think that's vitally important when we begin to establish what really marriage is. Uh, you, 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 you've heard, um, I don't want to seem as I'm disparaging anybody, I've had rassists who tell me that the, 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 the woman they live with their daughter, and uh, they are married, and they are married before God, and stuff like that. Uh, but there's always a legal aspect to it because the covenants involved and vows involved in this whole matter. That's, that's the first thing I think is important. If you look also at Genesis 2.24, uh, it's another principle that is clearly biblical when it comes to marriage. Genesis 2.24 says, 
Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Marriage also is a uniting of two people uh, in one flesh, but it's not just a unity of the flesh. It has to unite in the spirit as well. The, the totality of the person are being joined together. So that's another important element. It's not just a covenant thing, but it's also the uniting of the flesh. That's why marriage has to be consummated. Uh, persons can make vows, persons go to a covenant, sign an agreement, but unless the marriage is consummated, and that's where there has to be some kind of uh, intimacy between the partners and, and uh, intercourse between the partners to consummate the marriage, that is another factor when it comes to marriage. You just can't get married and not be willing to consummate the marriage with uh, sexual intercourse. It's just impossible, quite frankly. There's not a, a marriage without that. That involves in marriage because part of the vow. Uh, the other thing, if you look at um, Romans 7, 2 and Matthew nineteen six. Romans 7, two. 2 says, For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth but if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. And then uh, Matthew 19.6. Matthew 19.6 says, Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Yeah. So notice that the third element here that was designed to be permanent. Death was supposed to be the only uh, basis on which a marriage was to be terminated uh, if one of the partners died. So the idea of permanence is uh, certainly a biblical concept. It's not only just a covenant relationship. It's not only a matter of unity between the husband and the wife, but it also involves this element of permanence. That's what God designed marriage to be. And then if, um, if you look at Matthew, Malachi uh, 2.15 again, Malachi 2.15 says... Probably you can read that in a more modern version yeah. because I think the, the, the language is there is somewhat uh, tangled. Yeah. Uh, Malachi 2.15 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Okay, the element that we want to get, which you didn't get in the King James, is that it's not just a physical union. If you notice very clearly, it's a spiritual union between the, the, the persons. Marge is far more than just going to bed. That's what I'm trying to tell, tell people. It's far more than that. People, this is what it has become, in the essence of it believing that I, I get married to have sex, basically. Not, not God had something even beyond that, which is a spiritual union, and that comes up very, very clearly in that passage, the spiritual aspect of it. So I just wanted to reinforce that, that, that idea. And then if you look at um, Hosea 2, 19 and 20. Hosea 2, go into some books don't normally turn to. Yeah. Hosea 2, 19, 19 and 20. And 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will I will betroth sorry. Yeah. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. And verse twenty, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Yeah. That is saying basically what um the relation between God and Israel was to be reflected in marriage. The same way that 
um, a husband and a wife are betrothed to each other, to be faithful to each other. Uh, God is saying that's that's what I want between us. In other words, marriage has a, 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 not just a human element to it. It has an element where it's supposed to reflect the relation between God and His people. In this case, it's between God and Israel. So it, it has a, um, a divine aspect to it that uh, goes beyond the actual uh, physical marriage itself to reflect that relation between, yes. Pastor, we have Codrington on the air. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Um, yes, um, I have this question. This question is about the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there is a bunch of commandments, and one of them is um, when you have your Sabbath, you're supposed to stay inside your house. You're not supposed to go nowhere. Okay. In the New Testament now, they, they are allowed to walk anyway they like when when the Sabbath time comes. And they say, the Bible says, His word never changed. So how come Jesus changed the law from the Old Testament? Because when a man killed in the Old Testament, he, he shall be hanged. I'll answer your first question. Look, there is what you call the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, God dealt with Israel under the New Covenant of law, and he laid down certain restrictions. And Israel entered what is called a conditional covenant with God. And we will obey you. And there were blessings and cursings dependent on obedience. So when Israel disobeyed God, there were penalties. When Israel uh, disobeyed God, there were penalties. When their God, uh, Israel served the Lord, uh, there were blessings. Uh, and God laid down certain restrictions in relation to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel, a sign of redemption. It was also a sign of creation, first creation. But this was part of his covenant relationship that uh, he put certain restrictions on them in relation to the Sabbath. You couldn't, you couldn't light a fire on the Sabbath. You couldn't uh, do anything, labor on the Sabbath, etc., etc. That's the old covenant. But that old covenant was never designed to be perpetual. The law was given to bring us to Christ. It was our schoolmaster. It was God using um, a severe means to show man that he could not fulfill the righteousness that God required. That's why all those restrictions were given, to bring man to the point where he he acknowledges, I can't love God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my strength. And all the commandments that are given, whether it relates to God or man, there are two parts of the the commandment. The first four commandments have to do with your love for God. The last six has to do with your love to your fellow man. And it was all designed, basically, to bring man to the point where he saw that he could not come up to the standard of righteousness that uh, was needed. And it was always God's plan to send Christ to redeem us. We know that from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the womb would come, would bruise the serpent's head, and destroy the serpent, uh, the, the devil, basically. So th- that was the whole purpose of it, and that is why those restrictions were severe. Those things are no longer applicable to us today because we're now under a new covenant, which is called the covenant of grace. Uh, and uh, so that is the first thing. The other thing is, uh, it's, it's not true that under the Old Testament, when a man killed somebody, his life was taken, and that under the New Testament economy, his life is, is not forfeited, etc., etc. No, government still have the responsibility to take the life of a person who premeditatingly 
uh, kill somebody and murder somebody. Not somebody who kills somebody accidentally. That, that's manslaughter. When somebody deliberately, purposefully kills another person, that person's life should be forfeited. It's called capital punishment. It's not only endorsed in the Old Testament, it's also endorsed in the New Testament. Paul says the government does not carry the sword in vain. Uh, there are God's servant down here to deal with, uh, punish the evil, and to uh, bless the good, quite frankly. So that hasn't changed. Who has changed that really is governments who think they know better than God. And that's why we have so much crime sometimes, because if a man knows he can murder you and get away with it, <laughs> what stops him from murdering you and within 10 or so years he's out? Then he murders another person. There are people who do that repeatedly. Look what's going on in America now. It's, it's, it is so ridiculous. I wonder what has happened to that country. Uh, you're putting out uh, murders on the streets who are murdering other people. That's not God's plan. And the reason why you take his life, by the way, is because the Bible says man was made in the image of God. And when you kill another person, you're attacking God because it's a, it's a reflection of God's image. So capital punishment is still applicable today, but a lot of those other laws that we have there, unless a law is repeated in the New Testament, basically, or principally repeated in the New Testament, uh, you, there's no no um, basis or relevance for it unless it has some principle, some moral principle that is applicable to the New Testament. Did that answer your question, Codrington? I have another one to ask long further in uh, the program. So, yeah, we are kind of a um, kind of way. All right, good night. Thank you. Thank you for your call, Codrington. Appreciate it. And continue to listen to the Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.57. Pastor, we have a number of questions that have come in here. Uh, one from another island in the Caribbean. What about older men and younger women? On my island, there are a number of these men in their 70s, let's say 74, seeking women in their 30s or 40s, and then they have kids. I don't think this is good. What does the biblical worldview say? Well, th there's no uh, restriction in terms of age uh, within marriage in the Bible. I mean, uh, you check some of the Old Testament. like Even when David was quite old, they were still looking for... I think it was Abishag, a young lady to keep David warm. So there's no there's no indication in the Bible that there should be any restriction on marriage. However, I would say this because the Bible doesn't uh, condemn something. It doesn't mean that it's not it, it is something wise. At the same time, the Bible doesn't promote it either. So there has to be some kind of a balance between these kind two type of things. I would say to you that I agree with you that for a 74-year-old man to marry a 30- or 40-year-old lady and have children, uh, that would never be recommended. He's not going to be wrong. Uh, that child is not going to have a father. Uh, if he's 74, he's gone past the three score and seven. He's living on credit already, and chances are he's not going to live before 88. Most people are not going to live before beyond 72. The average lifespan is between 72, 70 to 72. So he's not going to live much longer. And any woman that uh, goes into a situation like that uh, have to be prepared to, for the eventuality that she is going to be a widow and that um, she's not going to have that man around to take care of the child. And think of the repercussions of that. She's still 40. Uh, chances are uh, a lot of reason why he's 74, uh, a woman 30 married is for security, is money. 
It's, he has house, he has land, he has, he has buildings, he has, he has business. It's, it's financial security. But uh, she, got, she got to ask herself, is that financial security worth um, having a child without a father? And if she is 40 and 30, and now she inherits that money, young men looking for her now. <laughs> so she's in real, real, real trouble. And I got to suggest to you that the young men are not willing to take on the responsibility of caring for somebody else's child. That's a mm. big problem yeah. with men today. Right. So she's she said to herself a real, real devastating blow in the future, and not only for herself but for her ch- her son. I would not recommend it. It would be, uh, it would be a very unusual situation uh, for me to counsel or uh, people in, in that area to recommend that that be pursued. It would have to be an exceptional case for that to be pursued because I see the danger you want when you're having children. You want the man to be wrong as a model for your child. You just can't look at financial security. You have to look beyond that. Uh, so I agree with you, and I'm very concerned about that. Uh, but the, the reality is that the younger girls are looking for older men because they have security. They have businesses. They have money they, in the bank. They have houses. They have land. They have a the vehicle, whatever it is, and that's, that's what's happening. It's purely sometimes mercenary uh, for people to pursue this. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night, Pastor Murphy. Wonderful program and very informative. I would like to know if a pastor drinks wine with his members, is it grounds for removal from the pulpit? Well, it depends. I would say this, right? Um, Take our church. I can use our church as an illustration. Part of the covenant that we make in our church is that we abstain from alcoholic beverage. That is part of the covenant that we make as as believers. I would think that if the church were to discover that I am drinking alcohol on the side, whether with my members or not, I think that would be cause for dismissal. I think it would be cause for, well, if they didn't want to dismiss me immediately, there would be some bought before the church, some discussion, and there would also be, you know, listen, if if this happens again, you forfeit the pulpit, whatever it is. But the church has to hold the pastor responsible because it's not just the people who are true, must be true to the covenant. He must be true to the covenant as well. And if that's part of your covenant arrangement that you have in your church, um, I would recommend that uh, the church meet together and uh, discuss it. If they feel it's an offense, it's a legitimate offense, uh, the pastor ought to be approached. I would suggest you get the deacons to do that uh, with him depending on his response to the deacons it might need to come to the church if he doesn't respond properly to the deacons and then the church can um, discuss what needs to be done and uh, make the decision but remember that the, the power of the church resides with the people don't ever forget that um, the pastor is, 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 uh, is called by the church the pastor can be dismissed by the church don't ever forget that if you ever surrender that uh, you enter dictatorship, and you must always let your constitution and the Word of God be your guide in these type of matters. That's why we have constitutions. That's why we have bylaws. That's why we have doctrinal statements. <clears throat> if the pastor deviates from the doctrinal statement as well, the members ought to uh, confront him with the deacons. And um, if there's a serious matter, a serious doctrinal offense, he may be removed from the pulpit. But uh, I, I don't understand what happens in other churches. I, I don't. <laughs> Sometimes I get the idea that the past is King Kong, and he can do anything he wants to, and nobody can trouble him. When you enter that kind of situation, you no longer have a New Testament church. 
you have a, a, a pastor who owns the church, but no pastor owns the church. The church belongs to the body of Christ, and the pastor must be held accountable if he deviates from the constitution, deviates from the biblical, whatever it is, he should be held accountable. A WhatsApp question from Trinidad. Thank you to each individual who is sending in questions. We appreciate it. Good night, Pastor. Here's my question. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree in Matthew 21, 18, and 19? Let me read those verses. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, found nothing on it but only leaves, and said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. In general science, we learned that there are male and female trees. The female tree is known to bear fruit and not the male tree. But didn't God create the trees? So why then did God curse it? Well, you're assuming it was a male tree. That's your problem. But I'm going to suggest to you it was a tree that was supposed to bear fruit. And one thing, I don't even know, you ever saw a plum tree yet? All the leaves fall off, and then it starts to produce blossoms, produce plums, and the plums begin to grow on it. And then as soon as the plums are there, the leaves come out. So when you see leaves on the plum tree, you pretty much believe it should have plums. The fig tree is like that, okay? Uh, once it has a lot of leaves on it, you should have figs on it. And that's the point he's making there. Uh, you have, you're making a profession that you are alive and that you're fruitful, but in actual fact, you're barren and you're dead. So it is using the parable of fig tree as a, as a, as a, a, a parable, basically, uh, to illustrate an important truth. He is hungry. He's looking for food. Uh, this tree, because it got this abundance of leaves, should have food on it, should have fruits on it. It doesn't have any. It's just occupying space. When I was in, in Barbados, um, what you call a guinea tree here, we had a huge guinea tree in our yard. Huge. I mean, man, this thing would bear blossoms, and you couldn't wait until you were just hoping these things would come. But every year, every year it produces lovely blossoms. You're waiting. Guess what? It just shed all the blossoms and never give you any fruit. I just got tired of it one day and cut it down. <laughs> it, it just wasn't serving the purpose. It gave me hope. I was going to get fruit, but I never got any fruit. And I, you know, let me remove that and put something else that would give. That's exactly what our Lord is saying here. He's, he's teaching a lesson that people can pretend to be alive. People can be, pretend to be fruitful. But in actual fact, they're barren, they're not alive. And all they're doing is occupying space uh, within the kingdom of God where there are other people who can fill that space. So that was actually a, a parable that was used to, uh, in a sense, rebuke those who make a profession but have no fruit. Uh, that in actual fact, barrenness is not something God is pleased with. It's, it's a curse, and we should not be barren in our Christian lives. Thank you again for sending in your questions. You can WhatsApp or text them to 268-782-1454. Maybe you have a question and you're thinking, I don't want to ask this question and be insulted. I don't want to ask this question and be publicly mocked. Listen, we can keep your question anonymous, and it is a safe place for you to ask your question. We're not here to ridicule. We are here to hear your question. If you have a question... I can 99% guarantee that someone else out there has the same question. 
So you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. If you want to call and ask it live on the air, the phone line is open and available. It's awaiting your call. 268-462-7420. Do take note that that number is different from the WhatsApp and text number. To call and be put live on the air is 268-462-7420. You can also join us on Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and comment your question in the comment section on your device. And I will pass it along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. No matter how you're joining us on tonight's program, maybe it's 1160 AM, maybe it's 92.3 FM, maybe you're listening around the world on www.radiolighthouse.org. Maybe you're joining us on Facebook Live. Maybe you're listening to the rebroadcast of this. Maybe you're listening to the podcast on your own time later in the week or years from now. We are honored that you have taken time out of your busy schedule to join us. While I mentioned the podcast, it's been a little while since I have reminded you of it. And if you are a new listener, let me share with you every single one of the, I think we're on episode 200 and. 220 is the episode number for tonight. All previous 219 episodes are on the internet for you to use for your own uh, purposes, to be able to go back and listen and study. I know sometimes Pastor goes through a lot of material in a very quick manner. It's because he's got a lot to share with you, but you can go back, you can take notes, you can listen to it at your pace on your time. To do that, you need to get to the podcast. You can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large picture that you see. It's a microphone. You can't miss it. Right in the center, there's a circle that says podcast. Click on that. And then you're going to see a link for That's Truth, the latest episode. But if you look right beside the latest episode, there's That's Truth Archive. Click on that, and then you can go to the archive of all the different programs. And they're categorized by topic. Maybe there's someone that you are advising or providing some counsel to, and there's a particular topic you are interested in uh, sharing with them. And the biblical worldview on that topic Go check out the podcast and just do a search. Once you get on the archive, do hit control F on your keyboard and do a search and see if you can find the topic. We've covered many, many different topics. Pastors uh, provided counsel on pornography, on marriage. He's provided counsel on the biblical worldview, uh, the homosexual movement, uh, end times, Bible prophecy, Many, many, many different topics. Enough of me talking. Uh, back to you, Pastor. Any other verses you want to share before we move on to the next question? Well, um, let me just quickly say, you know, we, we just look and see this. It's, it's, it involves a covenant. It involves physical unity between the husband and the wife. It involves spiritual unity as well. It is permanent. Uh, it is sacrosanct, so it should not be broken. And then it's a reflection of God's covenant relationship between his, he and himself. In, in, in uh, Ephesians 5.25 as well, you see that it's also a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. It's not just a reflection of God's covenant with Israel, but also a type of the relationship between God and the Ephesians church. 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, so it's the comparisons there, the, the, the level of love for the wife, 
should be on par as Christ's level for the church. And of course, that level of love was marked by the ultimate sacrifice. And a husband should be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for his wife. And then uh, if you look at Proverbs 18 and 22, you'll notice that another thing that we're told about marriage, seventh thing is that it's really a divine good that God has given. And God favors a man when he gets married. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. So that's a, that gives you the positive view of, of, of the biblical attitude. Marriage is not something to be regretted mm. or to go in with reluctance. It is really a blessing that God gives to us uh, to have a company, companion for life and God's favor is on people who follow that model of a monogamous relationship between a husband and wife. As you were just saying that, I was just thinking to myself, when was the last time in the secular world that I heard that perspective, that marriage wasn't something to, that it was supposed to be looked forward to, that it wasn't something to be uh, gone into with a little bit of apprehension? I forget the exact way you phrased Mm -hmm. it. But, you know, watching TV shows or movies or even just listening to people talking when you're in the grocery store, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get married or I'm so nervous. Is this the right person I'm supposed to marry? And it's it's not the biblical perspective. Yeah. The, the problem, Nathan, is that we're living in a post-Christian world. That's the biggest problem. All the media control uh, companies are totally anti-biblical, anti-God, and they're spouting their philosophy. And the only, we, we, it's very difficult to counteract that kind of opinion when all the media uh, outlets are pushing a particular narrative. Uh, Christianity is, is, you know, I don't want to put it this way, but quite frankly, we don't have the voice we used to have uh, on the the secular media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think that's where a lot of this negativity is coming from. Hollywood as well, through movies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think the the ultimate goal, I believe, is to actually get rid of marriage. I think that's the ultimate goal. That's why there's such a push for the homosexuality and the lesbian. And I'll, I'll tell you how it's going to be linked to. They're going to link it to population control. See, when you marry a man can marry a woman, that's one way of controlling the population. Marriage is increasing the population. This might sound crazy, but in a, in a, a years to come, you're going to see how that's going to be spun. That if you're going to save the planet, uh, the best thing is to uh, don't push this uh, traditional marriage, Christian marriage. And I think this is all part of one big wax of false teaching that is being pushed on the public and they're going to use every kind of argument uh, to encourage this this kind of a movement. Uh, the other thing, Nathan, is if you look at um, Genesis 222, 224, 225. Okay, 222 says, And the rib which the Lord God taketh from man made he a woman and brought her unto man. Skipping down to verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Verse 25. And they were both naked and the man and his wife and they were not ashamed. The reason I I gave that is that clearly marriage is to be a monogamous relationship between two people. Notice uh, he made a woman he brought her to him. Uh, a man should be joined to his wife, and the two should become one. This is God's plan 
God's original plan. Marriage was never designed to be uh, bigamy, bigamous or polygamous. It was always designed by God to be monogamous. That is God's plan. And that is why in Matthew uh, 19 as well, if you look at Mark 10, 7 and 9, Mark 10, 7 and 9 says, For this cause shall a man man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Same thing that he's quoting here. And remember, it's our Lord quoting this now. He's taking them back to Genesis, back to Genesis, to remind them of what was God's purpose in marriage. And the other thing I'd like to say, Nathan, not only is it a monogamous marriage, marriage can only take place between a male and a female. It's a man and a woman. All this nonsense about two men getting married and two women getting married, they may get married legally, but before God, that is not a marriage. And the Christian church uh, should never compromise with that because God abominates that kind of a thing. So I remember I was in, um, uh, I think it was in St. Croix some years ago at a conference, and the question was brought up because this St. Croix is a U.S. territory. Mm-hmm. And one pastor got up and asked, but what happens then when a man walks into the, the your church and he claims that they're married and so on and so on? What does the church do? <laughs> uh, they're married. I got up immediately and said, no, sir, they're not married. No matter how, whatever the government says, whatever legal link language they use, they're not married. And we don't treat them as married people in the church. As a matter of fact, they don't belong to the membership of the church if you have two, two females or two males, etc., etc. Uh, and I wish the church would take a stand on these matters. And it's the confusion of the church being ambivalent on these matters that's creating the confusion in the world. If the church were to take a stand on this, it would be clear definition distinction between that is which is right that which is wrong that which is righteous that which is ungodly that which is abominable and that which is pleasing to the lord that which is christian that which is not non-christian but the problem is the church has so compromised that the distinction is now being erased and that is what confuses a lot of the young people quite frankly why they they why should I follow the church? You know, uh, and they read the same Bible we read, and they see that God said He's a man and a woman. So how come the church endorses that now? So the church's church loses credibility, its authority, and it becomes like a social club where anything is possible. That's the tragedy of our times. To be honest with you, I know in the past I've heard you say that the church failed. There's so much confusion in the world because the church failed to take a stand on evolution where the church failed to take a stand on racism. Do I understand you correctly to say that this generation's or this time period, it's the church's job to stand up and take a stand on marriage or else it's going to create more confusion? Look at it again, Nathan. The church didn't take a stand on racism. We have a lot of problems now where people have rejected the church. Even today, the arguments you've got to make all the time is really, really tough sometimes because of, and you can't deny it didn't happen. Same thing with evolution. You had seminaries, universities, theological seminaries, had people teaching in those seminaries who were evolutionists. You've got people in the pulpit in a lot of the established churches 
they use the word God, but not the way that it's mean that they redefine God. God is really evolution for them. And, and again, look what has happened to those churches, right? Now the evangelical church, we should take a firm stand on this kind of thing. Even some good men that you would consider to be outstanding evangelicals are, have compromised on this whole thing. They're now saying that the church has made a mistake when it comes to the homosexuality. Mm. And they're allowing a, a reinterpretation of the Bible to accommodate the social standing of our times. That is the, in my, in my, the, the biggest challenge that the church faces today is on these kind of... So that's why we have problems with now with marriage, talking about same-sex marriage. We shouldn't have these kind of problems. You know, if we're taking our stand on these kind of issues, and by the way, remember that within these small democracies, these, these uh, countries like these Caribbean islands, uh, believe it or not, the, the politicians are, are very, very aware that if they go against church policy, they're in trouble. They know that, right? Uh, and that is where we have not been using our clout as we should to get uh, social programs that are going away from the biblical view to bring them back in line with biblical principles. I think that can still happen with it. For example, take Jamaica. In my judgment, Jamaica is probably, uh, in terms of the most militant uh, ch- uh, evangelical church you'll find it in Jamaica. Jamaica has over 150 Baptist churches. I understand that. Some very large churches. I remember when they were trying to push boogery and uh, homosexuality in Jamaica. 30,000. The church there was able to get 30,000 people walking uh, on the street saying this can't happen. Mm. And guess what happened? The politicians just backed away. Back, backed away. That's the clout that we have. In these smaller islands, uh, there's no pushback of that nature, but there should be. Now, I don't think that's the job of pastors, to be honest with you. Uh, pastor's job is to preach, edify the church, but we need to have Christian statesmen, which we don't have. Yeah. That's the dilemma. We need people like Wilberforce and Granville Sharp who would go into Parliament and wouldn't put the Christianity, leave it at home in a package. They carry it into Parliament and argue against the, the, the slave trade, even though it was not... Um, it was detrimental to their career, yeah. right? But they were willing to put that on the line because their faith was in God, not in politics. We don't have those kind of politicians today. What happened with our politicians is this. They claim to be Christians, but when they leave home, they package their Christianity somewhere, put it in a little box, and go into Parliament forget that they're Christians. So they never bring their Christian principles bear upon what is happening. That's the dilemma we face today. And I don't see, uh, unless we get a change in that, where we have some real godly people who are statesmen, Christian statesmen, who are saying, look, I am in Parliament, you put me in Parliament, but I can't, I can't surrender my Christian principles. That is what is needed, and we don't have it. That's the dilemma we find ourselves in. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.22. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse and the name of the program is That's Truth. It is a live, interactive call-in program. But you don't have to call and ask your question. You can WhatsApp or text it to one 782 1454 But if you do want to call and ask it live on the air, you can call one 462 7420 Anything else you want to mention in relation to the biblical perspective of marriage? No, I think those nine things really when you take those collectively together we have a profile of what God how God sees marriage and that should be the position of the church I mean we can't be serving a God and this is his perspective and we hold a different perspective Uh, and so this is the whole 
This is part of the, the general apostasy the Bible talks about. They'll be falling away before the man of sin is revealed. I think we are in that apostasy. Not only It, it didn't start today. Uh, it goes way back to the 18th century with the evolutionary theory. But now it is becoming happening so rapidly. We're now taking in. <laughs> by the time you hear what they're, they're accepting, you're wondering, but how in the world did we get here so soon? Hmm. And uh, I think that's the problem. But we we, uh, we need to get back to biblical principles and, and uh, be willing to fight for principles and take a stand for principles and become more active uh, in defending those biblical principles. I think the natural question that follows what you've said thus far is, now that we understand the biblical perspective of marriage, what is the purpose of marriage or the biblical purpose? Well, if you again go back to uh, Genesis 2, um, you'll discover that you can recognize that there are four purposes, really, uh, when you look at Genesis and just one other book of the Bible becomes very, very clear. But it's all in Genesis. Uh, it is clear that it is not good for man to be alone. So the first thing about that, and God created a woman to meet that need, that is companionship. Man needs companionship at the human level. Remember that Adam uh, had privacy with God. Think about that for just a moment, Nathan. One man in the world living with God. Wow. He owns everything. There's nothing that he doesn't own. Everything he owns, but quite frankly. But yet, God recognizes that there is a level of need that not even God can meet because God is not physical. God is not a man. So he creates somebody comparable to, uh, to Adam. And that has to do with companionship. I think there's no dispute about that. The other thing is, of course, that when he made man, uh, made a woman for man, he said, I'll make a help meet. And the whole idea is to complement the man. So it's not only about com- but complementing. Adam is a man who has certain qualities, assets, and has certain liabilities. Uh, Eve is also a woman who has certain assets and certain liabilities. She's not a man, and he is not a woman. And the deficiencies in one is met by the sufficiency of another. So there was supposed to be a complementary integration of the two personalities. That uh, clearly is another purpose of marriage. The third thing is children. Uh, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, no, I have said this before on the radio, and I will repeat it again because I hope, I, uh, quite frankly, if it offends anybody, it doesn't bother me. I would never marry somebody who tells me they don't want any children. Beyond right up front right now. Don't ever come to me and ask me because it's part of marriage. And I'll tell you what, children save a lot of marriages. A lot of marriages. I keep a lot of marriages together, right? So when you don't want any children, you're actually setting yourself to fail immediately, okay? And then I think the fourth thing that uh, is very clear in the Bible is it's for conjugal, conjugal pleasure. Sex. You remember, the, the best example of this, by the way, that I always laughed at is when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. Yeah. And the Lord said, you know, you're going to, you remember what Sarah said? She laughed. She laughed. Should I know pleasure? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I always find that very, very, very humorous, right? So that's the pleasure aspect of it. It was, so, so the, the, you should have conjugal pleasure. And if you read the book of Song, Song of Solomon, mm. it's a book that you can hardly preach in, with a mixed audience, it is that personal. It's about an intimate relationship between a man and his wife, etc., etc. So those are the four fundamental purposes. And of course, we would add, we would add the other one, uh, Nathan, is that they're supposed to reflect the relation between Christ and the church. So it's a type of the, the, the church. But but the four main things are companionship, complementing each other, children, and and conjugal, conjugal pleasure, uh, and. Um, 
I think those are the can be shown in the Bible clearly that those are the four basic reasons for marriage. We have a follow-up question that's come in in relation to the question about wine. Pastor, can you please explain what the Bible is saying when it says drink a little wine for the stomach? Well, uh, that if you were to um, investigate that in terms of uh, Bible commentaries or Bible dictionaries, you'd discover that um, wine was used as a medicine. Uh, it's still today used in medicine, by the way. Most of your liquids that you find in your medicine, check it out. You've got 5% alcohol, 10% alcohol. Uh, it it um, it was an antiseptic, quite frankly, and it, it helped. And in the case of Timothy, it's believed that he had some form of dysentery, some kind of a, 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 a stomach problem, and um, this would, would have been the recommended medicine at the time to, to help to, to deal with that matter. So he's telling Timothy, uh, use use the medicine quite frankly, use the wine and it will help you with your stomach condition. Uh, so that is what it really really boils down to. Um, just like in the Old Testament they were anoint the head with oil. Again, that was a medicinal use of the oil, etc., etc. You can't judge um, first century world by 21st century technology and the kind of insight we have into things. But I think any doctor will, will tell you, quite frankly, that alcohol has become the base almost for every kind of liquid uh, medicine that you take. And that is what the alcoholic content within wine would have helped Timothy and that whatever disease condition he would, would have had there. So the modern-day equivalent of that might be taking NyQuil when you have the flu. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I I can't think of anything that uh, – even even your mouthwash yeah. to, to kill the germs in your mouth, you, it has, a, I think, a 10% or 9% content in there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There's nothing wrong. Look, everything has a use. Everything that God has created has a use. You just have to find what that use is and use it and not – uh, abuse it. Uh, for example, I might say this again. I've said this before. Marijuana has a purpose, but it's not to to be smoked. It's not to be eaten. It has medicinal use, but it's the medical profession, the the people who know uh, about this thing and taking the THC and how to use it. But the madness of these people who. Uh, without any kind of medical knowledge, ex- claiming to be experts and to know better than the, the, the medical technicians, is just a matter of conceit and stupidity, quite frankly. But it has its purpose, but it's not to be smoked, it's not to be eaten. And uh, if you do use it, the medical profession, the ones that could determine what proportion to be used. And remember that THC today uh, in marijuana is four times higher than it was in the 70s. <laughs> Never forget that. Uh, so it's not the same type of marijuana that's being used today. So you're saying that I shouldn't rely on Mike Tyson's advice of whether or not to use marijuana. <laughs> what in the world does Mike Tyson know about medicine? <laughs> I, I, look, I don't know why people have made celebrities almost like gods, yeah. quite frankly. I, I laugh all the time when people who uh, run up and down a basketball field or play soccer or play something, that somehow they're experts in other areas. They're not experts in any other. They're not experts in playing the game, but in terms of moral issues and medical issues, they're clowns and idiots and morons when it comes to that kind of stuff. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.30. Pastor's talking tonight about marriage, divorce, remarriage, what the biblical worldview says about each of these topics and how it all intersects. 
We've been talking about the biblical perspective of marriage and the purpose of marriage. Pastor, what do you think of a Christian marrying an unbeliever? Well, I think it is very, very clear uh, in the scriptures that no believer should marry a non-believer. Um, as a matter of fact, I think if a believer is contemplating marrying an unbeliever, I would say that they have a very low view of marriage, and I would also say they have a very, very low view of their relationship with God. Are they in sin? Of course they're in sin. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, for those who might uh, doubt that, um, if you look at First um, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. First Corinthians seven thirty-nine reads as follows the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth but the husband be if the husband be dead she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the lord again she she can marry who she will only but only the lord i mean that's a very very clear uh, biblical principle and if you look at uh, <coughs> second corinthians 6 14 to 18 second corinthians 6 14 to 18 be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Let me change version there. Yeah. Uh, 14 to 18. 12 to, well, yeah, 14 to 18. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I think that is very, very, very explicit uh, that there should be not this union. He asked the question, what does fellowship of righteousness with unrighteousness, the believer with unbeliever? I mean, there's no, and the greatest yoke you can ever have is a marriage yoke, quite frankly. There's nothing more personal than that. And outside of uh, being saved, that is the second most important decision you would ever make in life. How can a person have the Bible before them and violate that vital principle of only marrying in the Lord? By the way, this not only relates to New Testament times. In the book of uh, Deuteronomy, um, I think it is 7, 3 to 4. Deuteronomy 7, 3 to 4. You shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Uh, okay. The point there, Nathan, is that marriage is not just physical. If you are a Christian, it involves a spiritual aspect. And God is telling the Old Testament people that, you know, you, there's a relation between you and me, the covenant relationship. You're going into this land of Canaan. You're going to meet these pagans who have these false gods. If you go into a marriage, what's going to happen? Your faith is going to become contaminated, and eventually you can become idolatrous. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. Uh, they didn't listen exactly what happened. And so even in the Old Testament, 
the person that belonged to the Lord, uh, uh, um, what you may call that belonged to the church of the Old Testament, if you want to use that term, was not to intermarry with the pagans around who did not belong to uh, to the Lord. That is something and you remember in the book of Nehemiah as well when Nehemiah learned that these Jews had married these pagans uh, Nehemiah was quite uh, violent I must say he grabbed them by the hair and separated them and said did not the Lord tell you that and they had to divorce the pagan uh, foreign people that they had married. So this is a principle that not only uh, runs in the Old Testament, it's carried over into the New Testament again because you cannot have true unity and uh, ultimate unity is spiritual unity between a husband and a wife if, if they only have unity at a physical level and not at a spiritual level the marriage is deficient and so you can't have that spiritual unity with an unbeliever that's why it's significant I have heard that verse uh, I think it's in Second Corinthians there about not being unequally yoked referenced to not going into a business partnership with an unsaved individual uh, is that a misuse of that verse? No, I think the principle is there. Uh, uh, I think, uh, I do not know of, well, I can think of some that, who've tried it, but it hasn't worked mm-hmm. because your uh, moral pro- pro- uh, um, principles, yeah. uh, etc., is so alien to the unsafe person uh, when it comes to like, paying taxes, when it comes to about doing things under the board, etc., cetera, et cetera. What about hiding figures, etc., etc.? Uh, very seldom has it ever worked with a believer. And I think you're putting yourself in jeopardy when you go into that kind of a uh, business deal because you're setting up yourself to fail if you want to hold to your biblical principles and your Christian principles because there's such a thing as a Christian businessman. There's such a thing as a Christian business. But it's very, very hard to... Uh, your principles just clash and I think it uh, doesn't work out. You referenced a little bit ago there, maybe it was Nehemiah, yeah. you said they divorced those that were pagan. Yeah. So what about the listener who says, Pastor Murphy, I married an unbeliever. Can I now divorce them in order to marry in the Lord? Well, again, remember that we are under a new covenant. And under the old covenant, that was something that Nehemiah could do. Under the new covenant, Paul tells you in Corinthians chapter 7, if you're married to an unsaved person and the unsaved person wants to stay, you don't end the marriage. We'll come to that later, Nathan, but that's there in Corinthians chapter 7 because that was the danger that some of these people in New Testament were using. No doubt, uh, as they got familiar with the Old Testament and saw those kind of things, they were would be tempted to say, "Ha ha! Ah, now I want to get out of this marriage." I I was uh, here's it. I uh, I I married to this woman before I was saved. Now I get saved. I want to get rid of this pagan and get a good a good good Christian wife. And Paul said, no, "Absolutely not. If they want to stay with you, you stay within the marriage." However. If they want to abandon the marriage, uh, Paul says, let them go. But uh, that would be the only condition if they want to leave the marriage. Uh, the believer is no longer bound in that situation. But uh, as long as that person wants to remain in the marriage, you stay within the marriage. The other thing I want to say, Nathan, that, that why this thing is so wrong between a believer and unbeliever, it's not on the matter of the spiritual unity that's supposed to be part of a marriage between uh, a Christian marriage, but it also defeats the second purpose of a Christian marriage to produce a godly seed, right? That is a real, real battle uh, uh, to, to do that. How do you produce a godly seed when you've got a Christian wife and an unsaved husband? It's, it's virtually impossible. So it defeats the whole purpose of having a Christian marriage. 
So, if a believer is not supposed to be marrying a non-believer, how should a Christian relate to another Christian who is planning to marry a non-believer? Well, the first thing uh, you should do is to start praying that the marriage would not be consummated. If you really think this is wrong, it is a matter that you should be praying about, God, please don't let this happen, uh, intervene in, in some kind of way. Um, the other thing is, uh, if your counsel uh, to this person does not uh, help and persist, do not participate in the wedding. If you're against something that is biblically wrong, how now can you endorse it by actually going to the wedding? But they asked me to be in the wedding party, Pastor. Well, again, what what happens there is you watch your biblical principle first. Which comes first? Your loyalty to biblical principles or your loyalty to friendship? And our loyalty is always to God first. But I can win their unsaved future spouse to the Lord by continuing to be a friend and showing love. Yeah, we don't disobey to compromise. Uh, that's not what we're supposed to do. The, uh, what I would say to you that even though you decide not to attend the wedding, it doesn't mean you end the friendship. There must still be that respect. That you know, Look, when a believer does wrong and they know they're doing deliberate wrong and you take a stand, they may be angry with you, but if they're a true believer, as they look back on this thing, they say, you know, you're right. So they still would have that respect. Now, for example, if I if I feel something, I, what the other person is doing is wrong, but yet I am part of it. Now they say, well, you're not serious about what you, your, your real, real, real position. The other thing I would say, Nathan, is that any minister of the gospel who marries a believer and an unbeliever is participating in sin. I repeat that. Any minister of the gospel that marries a believer and a non-believer is participating and facilitating sin because God said it should not happen, it is wrong. And that is part of the problem today. I keep saying the problem is not the world, the problem is the church. And often I say the church is the leadership in the church that is constantly compromising. And as you, you, you begin to compromise, you lose your moral authority. And therefore, when you are saying things, people are not listening long because you're violating the very principles that you're supposed to be preaching. What about if you're not a pastor, but you are given the authority by the court, and I'm drawing a blank as to the exact <laughs> terminology would be, but you are performing marriages, let's say, on the beach or different locations, and you have that authority from the government of Antigua or whatever island or country you're in, are you still participating in sin if it's a believer and a non-believer? Yeah, if you are, if you are a Christian... I'm not talking about the unsafe person. I'm talking about a person in authority who has a right as a Christian. You're, you're performing this role, whether it be at the beach or whatever it is, but you are a Christian. Uh, that is still participating because you are violating the very principles you're supposed to be holding to. So it doesn't matter whether you are the pastor in the church or you're some um, marriage officer of the government, uh, but you're a Christian. The point is you're a Christian. That's the whole issue I'm, I'm trying to emphasize. A Christian doesn't violate Scripture knowing what the Bible teaches uh, in order to either to... Uh, and by the way, a lot of people that do this kind of marriages are, are, are do it because they're paid to do it. Yeah. So it becomes a matter of uh, filthy lucre uh, is the motive why you do it. And if you're going to violate the biblical principle of filthy lucre, I don't have to tell you that you're completely gone down the wrong moral track as a, as a Christian. The other thing I would like to say, Nathan, 
in spite of the fact that you are against the marriage, you did not attend the marriage, uh, you still maintain your uh, Christian f- relationship with the person. Once that marriage is consummated, it is important for you as a Christian to help that person who is a Christian to help that marriage to be successful. You want it to be successful. And um, so you must know, um, even after the marriage, uh, you must now try to do everything in your power to make sure that that marriage lasts. Because once that marriage is consummated, it now becomes God's will uh, for that person who got married. We have a WhatsApp question that has come from Antigua. Uh, it's comparing one, two, three, four different passages, and I'm going to read it. It may be something you want to study in yeah, more yeah. depth for next week. But what are the dis- are there any discrepancies in these verses? Uh, Mark chapter one, uh-huh. and I don't know the exact verse, but they sent this verse, and it says, "And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus and Salome." had brought spices that they might come and anoint him. And the second passage is Matthew 28, 1. And they sent it in the New King James Version. And it says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. Third passage is Luke 24, 1 through 8. We don't have all eight verses here. And this is from the King James. Verse 1 says, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing spices, which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And the fourth passage is John 20, verse 1 in the King James. And the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. So what's the question? Are there discrepancies in these verses? All right. Let me re- re- deal with that next time. I'll, I'll deal with are there this. Okay. And one other question that has come in. What are the Jewish customs for handling male and female dead in the BCE time period? Jewish customs, what? Handling the male and female dead. Okay, we'll deal with that next time as well. Thank you to the individual who sent in the question, and we will start out, Lord willing, next week's episode with answering your questions. If you have a question, you can WhatsApp or text it. We've got about 15 minutes left in this episode, so go ahead and send in your question quickly. WhatsApp or text it to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. You can also join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed and then in your comment section on your device, you can comment your question, your concerns, or a future episode. I mentioned this earlier, but if you just joined in, we are desiring your help. We need your help. Please give us some suggested topics that you would like discussed or that you would think would be beneficial for the general public to hear 
discussed here on That's Truth. Maybe it's a broad topic. Maybe it's a topic relating to Christianity. Maybe it's a topic relating to just life. But we would love to hear your input so that we can keep this program as practical as possible. Until we hear your questions, Pastor is talking about marriage, remarriage, and divorce. Pastor, what about divorce? What is God's view about this topic? Well, again, I think the only way to get to understand that is to go to Scripture and see what the Bible teaches on this matter. And God has some very, very strong views against divorce. Uh, look at Malachi 2.16. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16. Let me scroll down to the end of the Old Testament. Malachi 2 verse 16 says... For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. Okay, there's a, uh, read the second verse. There's a, there's a section there I thought is uh, verse 16 where it says God hates divorce. It's actually there. I hate it. I've got the wrong verse. Uh, I was reading it in a different translation. Maybe I switched to verse 16. Yes. Uh, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garments, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. Yeah, that's the whole idea. I mean, that's a very strong emotive word that describes God's attitude towards it. It's not that he dislikes it, but there's no stronger word than than to say that God hates it. The very opposite of of love is hate. Uh, So that gives you uh, God's disposition towards this whole matter. Divorce is never and was never part of God's design for man, never part of God's plan. And uh, that must be something. The other thing is, Nathan, if you look at Matthew 5.32, you see that because God holds this position against divorce, he does not recognize uh, those who are legally divorced without any biblical grounds. Matthew 5.32 says, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Very, very clear that... um, the person who um, is divorced and there's no biblical grounds. The biblical ground there is infidelity. And, and that word, by the way, fornication, Nathan, is the word pornea, and it's the word for immorality. And it means immorality of any kind. It means incest. It means bestiality. It means homosexuality. Um, it means adultery. It's a common word, that uh, an umbrella term, for any kind of moral sexual sin that the person commits outside of marriage. So, um, but notice that if that person is put away and the grounds for that person being put away is not a moral moral act, the Bible says if uh, somebody marries her, commits, she marries somebody else to commit adultery. So it's it's saying that there's no, there's no, God takes it so seriously that if you marry without biblical grounds and the exception clause that God gives there. By the way, I might say this. A lot of people think that this exception clause deals with the espousal period, that before, you know, in the Old Testament, uh, normally a year, and that was, to, by the way, to, de- to know if the girl was pure. She had a year to know if she was still pure. But you were not 
legally married, fully married, but you're mar- but again during the espousal period, if the fornication was committed, you could put her away. So they use, but again, I was sure as we begin to deal with divorce, that the passage that they use that the Lord talks about is Deuteronomy chapter forty-four, which has nothing to do with the espousal period. It has to do with divorce. A man giving a writing of divorce. She's not dealing with the espousal period. She's dealing here with marriage. Clear mm-hmm. from that passage. So that needs to be cleared up because a lot of people use that to say he's not referring to um, marriage, he's referring to the espousal period. Absolutely not, because the same passage referred to is in Deuteronomy chapter 44, which has to do with marriage, nothing to do with the espousal period. That's the first thing that needs to be cleared up. Um, but uh, again, so Pastor, what do you mean though? The innocent person know if somebody marries uh, her or she marries somebody, she's committed adultery. Yes. So then, how does that solve the problem now where the innocent person... And here's the thing, Nathan, there's no... A lot of people read that and think that that puts us into a bind now where we often say that the innocent person had a right to be married. What you've got to realize is this. You, you don't rush into a marriage after a person divorced you illegally. I'm going to say it, but unbiblically. You only have to wait uh, to, to legitimize your right to marry because there's be adultery involved. There's no question about that. So that's what he's saying. But if in the process that person just rushed into another marriage, they didn't have a right, uh, right for a divorce, he said that's adultery. See? And the person that marries her is adultery. He has to wait till the actual uh, marriage is broken by infidelity. And generally speaking, when a man puts away a wife for not inf- uh, for, for uh, any reason other than uh, infidelity, it's not because there's another woman involved. He just want to get rid of her. He want to get another. And you just wait. See? So there's, there's, the biblical grounds are there, but again, it's not something you rush into because, ah, I, didn't, I, was, unf- I was faithful to my husband and he put me away, therefore I can marry this man. Ah, it doesn't work that way. The vow is not broken until there's infidelity. Mm. Right, and if you see this infidelity is, is broken, then you have a, the right then to go ahead biblically to divorce. We have two WhatsApp questions that have come in, Pastor Murphy and Brother Nathan. Good night. Concerning the topic you are discussing right now, I know a pastor here on my island who does all that you have said concerning marriage between saved and unsaved persons, but he gets paid for doing it. In my opinion, he has lost his way. He does not command the respect of the people he once had. Do you think he will lose his reward as he is disobeying God's command about this thing? Well, I think there's no question he will lose. I don't know if he'll lose all of his reward, but certainly he would, would lose his reward. By the way, that was offered to me in uh, when I was in St. Lucia. It's a very lucrative thing. People from overseas, mm-hmm. they want to get married in the Caribbean, and uh, the hotels were offering a, a good... Um, good money to to marry people, but I, I I couldn't do it, Nathan, because number one, I don't even know who these people are. Yeah, right. I don't know even if they're Christians, I still don't know who they are. I don't know their values. I know nothing about them. So I'm just going to marry people for the sake of marrying people for money, and then within a few months or year, the marriage is broken up, and I held response. No, but there there I knew other pastors who were doing it. Quite frankly, because it was U.S. money. Quite frankly. It is making merchandise of God's work. And this particular passage, he's marrying people that are not uh, Christian with a non-Christian, quite frankly, and the motive is money, quite frankly. He's a mercenary person. He's, he's in love with filthy lucre. And I have no doubt in my mind there will be consequences when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ. No question in my mind about that. Another question. Pastor, what about two people that love each other and they are not saved, or they're both not Christians, and they want to get married. What is hindering them from getting married? 
Well, uh, I'm not. The, the Bible doesn't restrict or put any um, controls on the matter of two, on say people getting married or two Christians people getting married. It, it, it's against the unequally yoked situation between a believer. I don't know why. Uh, to unsaved people who are in love with each other, who we hope have had enough time to evaluate each other, etc., etc. Uh, I don't know why that would be. Um, I couldn't. I could I couldn't tell you why that would be. But uh, if they're in love with each other, and and I would suggest to people, by the way, today, whether Christian or not, you need premarital counseling before you're rushing to counseling. There are people that will tell you today when you begin to counsel, they had no premarital, and they just wish that they had sat down with somebody to explain what marriage is about. And as I keep saying to you, when you're dealing with marriage, you've got to deal with several topics before. You've got to deal with communication. You've got to deal with finance. You've got to do, deal with in-laws. You've got to deal with communication. You've got to deal with sex. Uh, for no, and then you've got to deal with some way of um, dealing with the whole matter of conflict resolution. How do you solve problems? Uh, if you don't haven't dealt with those expectations, uh, and roles. I mean, these are things that have to be covered before you get into a marriage. People don't think about these things. Most people think, generally speaking, we jump into bed uh, happy ever after. They're in for a rude awakening, and uh, don't be surprised if it ends in disaster, because if that's the motive, quite frankly, you're not ready for marriage. We just have a couple minutes left in the program. Got a number of questions that have come in. We'll see if we can get to them all. WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night, Pastor. If a man divorce, is he qualified to pastor a church? If a man divorces, I guess if well, a man I, I would, is divorced. If a man is divorced, I th- I would say to you this: uh, I would not want a divorced person in our pulpit uh, to to pastor the, the church. I I think that the pastor pastorate should uh, manifest the. The greatest level of um, what God intends in terms of God's will is concerned. I think that the pastor ought to be able to be a model uh, to those people. However, I will tell you this. I've known of uh, one, uh, one exception or two exceptions where the, it was not the pastor's fault. Uh, he did everything to save the marriage, but the wife walked away from the marriage. And in that case, that church retained him as the pastor. Uh, that's an exception that I know, but I know the situation quite well. I know of uh, two cases like that uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, that is a tough one. I think the church would have to decide on that. But for us and for me, and if I was going to advise our church, it would be not to have a divorced person as their pastor. That would be my advice to them because I think a pastor ought to be able to model what a home is supposed to be and to have proven that he was successful in his home. I don't know how he's able to deal with people with divorce problems and he himself can't make his marriage survive. I think that's a deficiency, and I think it would be a massive mistake to make that man a, 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 a pastor. We have just over a minute left in this episode. Not enough time to jump into this next lengthy question. So we'll start out. If you send in a question tonight and you haven't heard it asked to Pastor Murphy, we will start out next week's episode with it. In the last minute or two, Pastor, any final wrapping up thoughts that you want to leave us with as we've been discussing this topic of marriage, remarriage and divorce i know you still got a lot of material you probably will cover it in a future week yeah we, we, we will uh, look i i would like to say to people that it's my uh, observation and my and my constant experience that marriage is a huge problems in uh not only antique all over 
there are people who are going into marriage, and a lot of believers are like this. Uh, they did not prepare for the marriage. They never read a marriage book. They never had it sat down with an adult person and discuss what marriage is about. And because they're ill-prepared for marriage, when they face problems in marriage, everything crumbles. I think that needs to change, and I do feel that there needs to be I think among pastors, I would say to pastors, before you ever marry a person, insist, insist that there must be premarital counseling. I think that would be one of the greatest things pastors can do to make sure that marriages last. Going to put you on the spot in the last 30 seconds. What's a good marriage book that you would recommend before one gets married? There's one by a guy called um, Mac. Um, for, forgot his first name, but it's Mac. But it's on premarital counseling. Uh Oh man, I just know his last name is is, is Matt, but check it out. Uh, premarital counseling and put the word Mac in. Uh, that's one of the most biblical books I've ever read that deal with premarital counseling. Wayne Mac, Wayne Mac, that's Mack. his name. Wayne Mac. Thank you. Sorry, I threw you in the <laughs> in the hot seat there. It's okay. Have a great night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.